everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Adrian Bloom, back from vacation, thank goodness, editorial director of Food Safety Magazine, and Bob Ferguson, president of Strategic Consulting. So welcome, team. Hi, Stacey. Howdy. All right. So we've got a really packed show for you today, so I'm just going to start powering through. And there's going to be no fooling around. I think I'm probably saying that more to myself than anybody else, but no fooling around. So our first piece of business is to tell you about today's interview. Today, you're going to hear Adrian's interview with Tia Glave and Jill Stuber, food safety and quality consultants who have worked in large and small manufacturing companies and now work with companies to build sustainable food safety cultures. This is really cool to have them on. Yeah, I'm really excited for everyone to hear this interview because um, not only are Tia and Jill so fun and insightful to talk with, but I think whether you're leading a food safety team or you're a junior member of one, you're going to want to hear their perspectives on leadership, training, and management of food safety and how these things inform and impact food safety culture. We're also going to get a report from Bob Ferguson on his latest Food Safety Insights column published in the June-July issue of Food Safety Magazine entitled Return to Normal. Ready to travel again? Hmm. Let's get out there. Well, you know, that's a little something. Here in California, they we're on the verge of <laughs> masking again, so I don't know. <laughs> BA, what is it? BA5 is, you know, having its way with us. Before we jump to the news, I'm actually going to share some information about our upcoming travel. So like it or not, here we come. Uh, first, uh, and that is that a Food Safety Magazine team is going to be attending uh, the IAFP meeting in Pittsburgh, July 31st through August 3rd. So if you're there, please come by uh, and see us at our booth. That's 1017. I'm sure you wrote that down. You're going to remember it, right? <laughs> anyway, just know we're there. Food Safety Magazine and the Food Safety Summit. It'll be in the directory. You can find us. So we're pretty excited to get back in person at this really important meeting. Uh, we're also in full swing planning our 2023 Food Safety Summit agenda. So we're going to be gathering with our incredible and expanded educational advisory board uh, while we're there and, and having a meeting. So there's a lot going on. Uh, we're also going to be opening registration for, this, for next year's summit while we're there with a very special offer to start the celebration of the summit's 25th anniversary. So stop by and get all the details. Don't tell anybody. It's 25% off for 25, 25 for 25, but only for August. Shh. And on that very quiet note, let's start the news. Thank you for the intro, Stacy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so first up in news today, we want to talk about the annual report from USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service, or FSIS as we know it, on foodborne illness outbreak investigations for fiscal year 2021. So we last reported on this topic during episode 108 in November of last year, shortly after FSIS released their report for fiscal 2020. Now, the most recent report summarizes outbreaks investigated from October 1st, 2020 through September 30th, 2021. And it also discusses some after-action reviews that FSIS conducted in fiscal 2021. 
So FSIS investigated nine foodborne illness outbreaks in fiscal 2021, and that's compared to 12 outbreaks in fiscal 2020, and also 16 outbreaks in each of the previous two fiscal years before that. Now, FSIS did note that the COVID-19 pandemic may have led to less reporting of foodborne illnesses, which may have translated into a lower number of outbreak investigations. So that's one thing to keep in mind as we discuss these uh, results in the report. Now, of the nine outbreaks that FSIS investigated in fiscal 2021, seven were multi-state outbreaks. These investigations led to three recalls and two public health alerts, and they also involved around 200 illnesses and 60 hospitalizations. Now, salmonella was associated with three of the outbreaks, and another three were linked to shigatoxin-producing E. coli. One outbreak was associated with Listeria monocytogenes, and the ninth involved a suspected case of botulism that was not confirmed through sampling and testing. Now, one after-action review highlighted in the report concerned a Salmonella enteritidis outbreak associated with various chicken products. FSIS addressed concerns on labeling, food safety programs, and Salmonella sampling. Now, another after-action review was done for a listeria outbreak associated with ready-to-eat chicken. Whole genome sequencing data was heavily used in this outbreak investigation, and rapid coordination and data sharing between FSIS, the CDC, state health partners, and industry helped facilitate the collection of exposure data and traceback information for this outbreak. Yeah, Adrian, and taking a look at this, uh, there was a couple of things that jumped out. One is FIS talked about the possibility of underreporting because of uh, COVID. And I think some of that probably jumps out because when you look at the 2020 and 2021 numbers, the ratio of salmonella to E. coli or STEX and listeria are almost identical, plus or minus a few points. E. coli was 33% both years. Listeria was about 20% either year, minus a couple of points. And then when you look at the distribution between beef, chicken, uh, multi um, multi-ingredients and pork, those numbers are also almost exactly the same. So what you then see is that illnesses were down and hospitalizations down. Uh, there's a little bit of the numbers because of the outbreaks were down, but they did say in the report that they were questioning whether or not healthcare seeking behaviors, mm -hmm. are you gonna go to the hospital during the middle of a pandemic or try and ride your illness out? And the other one was where we ate meals. I, I would suppose if somebody was ill in a restaurant, they're more likely to report it than if they cook the food themselves. So there may be a little bit of under-reporting. The numbers look big statistically. They're probably mid-sized, probably not real big, but it looks to me like the same sort of thing happened in, in both years. It'll be interesting to see next year's data to see what happens or if there's any, you know, where there's any real change, but it doesn't really show up very much here. You know, that's interesting, Bob. We've talked a lot about the underreporting because of, you know, going to the hospitals and how problematic, right. certainly in the early days, but I can attest that even in, you know, um, late last year, crazy, <laughs> just oh, yeah. insane at the hospitals. Like, if you don't have to go, don't go. So don't go. I certainly <laughs> understand that. Um, but the part about um, cooking at home versus eating out, I, you know, for all the talking about this that we've done, I, that sort of didn't, hasn't come up yet, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and so looking at our next uh, piece of news, we have some news from FDA. So the administration recently published a final guidance document on FISMA compliant preventative controls for pet food. 
Now, this guidance is intended to help animal food manufacturers develop hazard analysis and risk-based preventive controls for animal food in compliance with the Food Safety Modernization Act, or FSMA. So the document provides guidance on a number of points, including biological, chemical, and physical hazards in the manufacturing, processing, packaging, and holding of animal food, and also how to set up preventive controls. It also discusses the components and implementation of a food safety plan for pet food and how to conduct a hazard analysis. The guidance also explains the record-keeping requirements for a food safety plan. Now, this final guidance replaces a draft guidance for pet food that was issued in January of 2018. So it's great to have that final guidance out there uh, to ensure that the food for our pets is safe. I know most of the pet food manufacturers that I work with have similar programs to um, human food manufacturing anyway. So most of the pet food, I think, are probably going to have maybe an easy time with this, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, and once again, how long it's taken for all this FISMA stuff to roll out, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, so. Absolutely. And so another news item that we want to share with you from FDA is the results from FDA's PFAS testing study for seafood samples collected at retail. So FDA initiated the seafood survey based on its total diet study, or TDS, um, which the results of that were recently released for fiscal year 2018 to 2020. And the results of that TDS study found relatively low levels of PFAS in some seafood samples. Now, this initial PFAS survey was done to determine if a more targeted or larger seafood survey should be conducted. And we've been waiting on these results for some time, so it's exciting to finally hear what FDA has to say about PFAS detection in seafood. So in this study, FDA tested 81 samples of various shellfish and fish species, most of which were imported to the U.S. Now, FDA evaluated the samples for detectable levels of PFAS with toxicological reference values. Now, interestingly, samples of canned clams imported from China showed a harmful level of perfluorooctanoic acid, which is a type of PFAS that poses a public health concern. Now, FDA is looking into the extent of the PFAS contamination of the canned clams, as well as PFAS in other clam products, to ensure the safety of the food supply. Now, after learning the results of the study, the two distributors of canned clams with the highest PFAS levels did issue voluntary recalls. Now, aside from the canned clams, however, FDA said that all other seafood samples tested in its study did not exhibit harmful levels of PFAS contamination. However, FDA did say that the percentage of seafood samples with detectable PFAS and the amount of PFAS found in them are higher in the recent survey than in the overall total diet study samples. Now, FDA believes this can be attributed to the testing protocols used, as well as to its wider sampling of different seafoods and its expanded testing for types of PFAS that are more prevalent in seafood. So it seems like FDA is saying that they expanded their search parameters and found more contaminants, which doesn't seem very surprising, although I think it is concerning. All right. So you guys know I like numbers and maybe complicated things. And this is the first time I've really dug into the PFAS issue. And my, is this complicated stuff? Um, There are no real set numbers like there are in in other things and guidelines. There are some EPA numbers and there are some toxicological numbers that are based upon uh, different measures and how much you're exposed to. 
But this is really difficult. The one thing is the safe level that the EPA has is 70 parts per trillion. Now, a number of these canned clam samples were in the 4,000s, uh, depending upon whether or not it was PFOS wow. or PFOA. So they were fairly higher numbers. But again, fairly. we're talking about parts <laughs> per trillion. So it's still a small amount. Yeah. And a lot of the toxicological data is not um, settled yet, from what I can tell. I don't claim to be an expert in PFOS toxicology, but it, it, it's fairly uh, complicated. I also read a uh, editorial that the uh, Atchison Group had earlier this week, and they made a comment that the EPA has lowered that 70 number down to 0 0.004 for PFOS, and 0 0.004 parts per trillion is the same ratio as four miles in a trip of 170 light years. So we're talking about really, really low levels. These are really small amounts. But the issue then goes back to uh, the Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry that does the toxicological studies for the federal government lists things like three parts per trillion uh, per kilogram of body weight as being a daily uh, no effect level. So again, the effects that they see are, are at very low levels. Uh, the issue is, is it just doesn't seem like much is known about exactly what these PFOS chemicals will do at very low levels with long exposures. There are more than 5,000 of these com compounds. The two that we're talking about are the particularly problematic ones. Um, but I think the science on this is, it, it's, it's, again, some of it is fairly certain as far as higher concentrations, but as far as the lower concentrations, it's tough to know. So uh, for food companies, for packaging companies, this is going to be a difficult issue for a while. It's a shame that you're not an expert at all, Bob, because, you know, I could have taken that and just run with it for days, you know. What? So, <laughs> not. So, so, so I don't know if this will stay in or not, but I had, I sort of had fun with uh, the Atchison group saying it was four miles and 170 light year uh, trip. I thought, you know, George Jetson, we're going to be a few minutes late because it's four <laughs> miles longer than I thought it was going to be. But no, the issue of this is, again, at low levels, lots of these things can have problems. We know there are carcinogens. We know there are yeah. acute levels at higher levels. But, but as far as, you know, what happens with low levels of these, they're in the environment. We've all been exposed at some level. And I think we've all been exposed to lots of them. Oh, yeah. Right? To lots of them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it, it, it's, it's really difficult. The numbers are very small, but the, the, the level that we're exposed to and the levels they're talking about are, 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 are fairly ubiquitous. So we are being exposed to this and it's not clear exactly mm -hmm. what's happening. At least that I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think just from kind of a personal point of view, you know, as our ability to measure and understand what the, you know, threshold should be for human, for, for health, for, um, you know, things like PFAS or toxic metals, you know, things like that. Um, and we see that, you know, we, we need to keep mm -hmm. revising the, the threshold lower and lower and lower. And as our ability to detect these contaminants becomes better and we're finding that they're higher and higher and higher than we thought. And we know we have been exposed to, you know, certain amounts of these things over time, you know, depending on what your age is, you just kind of have to, it can, it can keep you up at night a little bit thinking about how much of this stuff is in my body already, you know, and whether that's you get it from the environment or, you know, from food or, or from whatever other exposure, mm -hmm. you know, your, your workplace or wherever you're having exposure to these things, it's, you know, it's a bit frightening, yeah. I have to say. Well, and the connection between the environment and food, I mean, 
that's where mm-hmm. this right. is. There it is. Exactly. And I think this has been the thing for me on um, pesticides as well. I mean, they may test this pesticide, say, okay, this is the level of this, but the cocktail, right, is always a thing. So, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we're good over here. We're good over there. We're good over there. But then you add it all together. <laughs> but again, for me, too, the fact is, and perhaps, you know, I'm excited by the fact that food safety is never done, that we are just continuing to get better and we're continuing to find new ways to uh, to guard the, the supply and ensure, um, you know, healthy food for everyone everywhere. So I think that's a, a lofty but, but great goal. So Absolutely. And, you know, kind of on that note, um, our last resource that we would like to share with you before we go. Before we go. Before we go, is that the National Environmental Health Association, or NEHA, as it's commonly known, has launched a national census of the retail food regulatory community to help identify opportunities for education and training for retail food regulators. Now, this survey was developed as part of the joint NEHA and FDA Retail Flexible Funding Model Grant Program. And these findings will be used to build educational resources, close knowledge gaps, and improve workforce capabilities to ensure safe food at the retail level. So everyone working in retail regulatory food safety is encouraged to complete this survey, which will stay open until this autumn. And we will definitely include a link so you can find out more about how to do that in the show notes. Great. Okay, so how about some food safety insights from Bob Ferguson of Strategic Consulting? So as many of you know, Bob regularly surveys our audience to gain insights on important industry trends. Today's results were published in the June-July issue of Food Safety Magazine. Take it away, Bob. Thanks, Stacey. You have the return to normal, getting... COVID into the rearview mirror, maybe a little bit, uh, n- not over. Ultimately, it'll, it'll, you know, the COVID virus will always be around. But uh, we wanted to find out more about how food processes are coping. And as this issue goes back into the past, you know, where they are in their recovery. And as a measure, we asked one of the questions about whether or not they would resume travel and in-person meetings with an idea that's a bit of a proxy on one of the things that restrictions that you're going to lift probably last. So we wanted to find out a little bit more than that and also find out if we see everybody out at these meetings and see who is going to be at the trade show. So we asked 250 companies about their travel plans for this year. And the survey showed that about 40% of North American companies and more than 50% of international companies still report having significant travel restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you just look at those numbers or think about those numbers, there are details. And at Food Safety Insights, we love the details. So many of the companies are saying that their travel restrictions are limited to essential travel. But we also found that there's a lot of definitions of what essential travel was. And that ranged from no travel outside your main work area. So someone who works in a single plant may just stay at that plant to getting back to in-person meetings and trade shows, only maybe fewer of them. Much of this was related to the type of organization making the decision and also the level of risk. So I mentioned a processor with a single location would not be the same as let's say somebody with a more complex supply chain and has more perhaps service companies and needs more locations with customers and get to. So it was clear from the data that there are many degrees of these restrictions. Others seem to be staying flexible and telling us that they were monitoring the situation daily and slowly reducing their restrictions as it was warranted. So that's what we're seeing as far as what people are saying is travel. 
So, Bob, these are really interesting results, and certainly, you know, as you said, um, the the details are the important thing to examine here. I'm curious, were there any key differences in different regions that you saw? Yeah, that was another thing that jumped out from the data. Um, for instance, one European company that we spoke with, and this was a common answer that we heard with a lot of the European countries, were saying that they were allowed to travel as long as the travel was in Europe. People didn't want to cross national borders because it gets complicated as far as testing and, re and returning home. So they wanted to make sure that they could avoid that. Others mentioned that the restrictions were based upon the conditions at the destination. One processor told me that you know, it's okay that I can travel, I just can't travel there. I can't go to this supplier because of what's happening there. So they didn't have any restrictions themselves, but it depended upon where they were going. The other thing was US Canadian companies mentioned the specific restrictions fewer and one of the things that people said in the interviews was, well, we can travel four, five, six hours by air and still be in the US or still be in Canada. And very few people mentioned some of the things we may be hearing in the news about travel across the Canadian border. It didn't seem to come up very much in, these, in our surveys here and in our interviews here. So again, it's easier for us to travel to trade shows and not cross national borders. A little bit less so in Europe is what we found. Well, we certainly feel like trade shows are essential. <laughs> I mean, they're very essential. And, and I can tell you that, you know, meeting folks at the summit and seeing how excited everybody was to be back in person, a lot of people, folk, folks feel that it's essential. Um, but you're finding that that, that is, uh, you know, commonly held uh, idea that they are essential? So again, it depends upon who you asked. And I, fa I found this data to be really interesting because it seemed like the numbers that we were getting were lower than, let's say, what we saw at the summit, because I thought the summit was pretty well attended. We you know, saw a lot of people yeah. we haven't seen for a while there. Uh, when asked about conference travel, about 27% of the North American companies and 20% of the international companies, they would be back to attending in-person conferences. Um, virtual conference attendance still remains an option for many people with another 35% and 63% of international companies say they'll be attending virtual conferences. Some of that depended upon who they were. So it seems from the interviews that if you're with a big processor, maybe fewer people from your company would be traveling, but someone would still be traveling. But where trade shows were a big part of your business, let's say you're a service company or an engineering firm or, or something like that, where it, it's been key that you haven't seen your customers in a long time, they were much more likely to be uh, resuming travel. And one company said, yes, we're traveling. We, we can't wait to get back out there. So it kind of depended on why you were traveling and what you were doing. And for, if it's essential for the business, it seems like travel's back for those companies. Right. Well, it's all very interesting, and I guess it, to some degree it remains somewhat um, situational, <laughs> right? Still a little bit of flux out there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, well, we're all really looking forward to uh, having this behind us. So as usual, you'll find links to the references that we've made in the show notes. Uh, we certainly also encourage you to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook, and uh, again, to get connected to everything that we're doing here, we really encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter or our e-magazine or, you know, go ahead both. It'd be great. Um, just visit our website, food-safety.com, and you can take a look at everything and you'll find those uh, subscribe areas on the website. And now it's time for Adrian's interview with Jill Stuber and Tia Glave, food safety and quality consultants and founders of Catalyst, LLC. 
Jill Stuber has served on food safety and quality teams for several multi-million dollar food companies and food industry support companies at the corporate and frontline facility levels. She has defined expectations and programs for company-wide FSQ systems and has been responsible for verifying the implementation of those systems. Jill has led multi-plant teams to clearly define team and individual roles, expectations, and boundaries to more fully integrate and collaborate across organizations. Jill holds a bachelor's and master's degree in food science from the University of Wisconsin at River Falls and Madison, respectively, as well as a master's degree in quality management from Eastern Michigan University. She's a professional coach certified through Learning Journeys, an accredited program through the International Coaching Federation. She's also HACCP certified, PCQI certified, an SQF practitioner, an IFT certified food scientist. I think I need some oxygen. <laughs> a, lean, a lean facilitator. And I always love this one. A Six Sigma black belt. Jill is also an active member of the International Association for Food Protection, IAFP, serving as the Developing Food Safety Professionals Professional Development Group Vice Chair. Tia Glaive is a food safety quality and regulatory professional with almost a decade of experience in large food manufacturing, food retail, and startup food environments. She is formally trained as a chemical engineer and holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Tennessee. She's a qualified individual trained in PCQI and SFVP, is knowledgeable in GFSI schemes, and has worked with many food product categories. Tia has a passion for helping manufacturing and retail organizations of all sizes build and strengthen their FSQ programs. She uses systems data and proven methods to develop and implement FSQ strategies that create efficiencies, are effective, and identify cost savings, all while using servant leadership principles. She's led large and small teams across multiple functions, including operations and maintenance, giving her a unique approach to implementing a strategy cross-functionality. Tia's passion also extends to championing black talent in food safety and quality, and she's the founder of the Black Professionals in Food Safety Group to foster sharing, development, and connection to support black talent. You can find that group on LinkedIn. Tia is also an active member of the International Association of Food Protection, IAFP, serving as the Retail and Food Service Professional Development Group Vice Chair. So, both group vice chairs. Vice chairs, one and all. Okay, so, without any more ado, here's Jill and Tia. Well, I am here with Tia Glave and Jill Stuber. They are food safety and quality consultants and the founders of Catalyst LLC. So, Jill and Tia, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us here today. Very glad to have you here today. So, you both founded your own business management consulting firm, Catalyst LLC, in 2021, after years of working in food safety and quality, or FSQ as we'll call it during this interview, for both large and small companies. So with Catalyst, you help food manufacturers and retail food service businesses build sustainable food safety cultures. Now, when you start working with a company, what are your first steps or areas for evaluation in tailoring an improvement plan? Well, Adrian, you know, we're all familiar with the phrase that we meet people where they're at 
And that's exactly what we do as our first step to understand where that is. And we do that because we know with any company that food safety policies do not always equate to the food safety culture that we're trying to better understand. Yeah. And this is actually one of the things that make Catalyst different. All of our clients, they're on their own unique journey um, on, with food safety. And we understand that where companies are and where they want to go into the future it's also unique. And so we assess that and we really then create a roadmap for them to get to where they want to be. Yeah. You know, to be more specific, our first step when we work with a company or a team is really an assessment so that we can provide some insight on that current state and really where they want to go. Because we know sometimes it's new products, sometimes it's an expansion, sometimes they're looking to get into new markets or even add new claims. And all of these things really impact how and where food safety and quality go in the future. Yeah. And so if we understand their top business goals and the growth plan, we then try to um, we then dig deep into the current state of their food safety programs. You know, do they have some programs that need to be assessed? Are they looking for a full food safety management system? You know, do they have programs and policies created, but no one in their organization is following them? Do they have KPIs that have been developed and what are they? You know, these are the type of questions that help us understand do people in the company truly understand food safety or do they need technical skills in order to either build or execute the food safety programs? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not just about um, some of those programs because we really like to understand how the organization is structured too. Mm -hmm. You know, we we really do want to understand, like, are they, do they have dedicated food safety personnel or is it someone who's maybe trying to wear a lot of hats and they're managing it all? Right. So we go from thinking about, you know, program development to, okay, are there people ready? So we call it people readiness. You know, are there people overworked or frustrated, burnt out? Because we know that this is a very real current state for many food and beverage companies. And when their people feel that way, change will not go well. No. You know, and on top of that, we even look at things like turnover and background and experience for people in specific roles so that we better understand people readiness. And, you know, I think about so many organizations are experiencing turnover at all levels. And T and I often talk about there's this crazy fact um, that managers in food and beverage industry experience two and a half times more turnover than other industries. And that's why we really stress this people assessment, because it is such an in important part. Yeah. And so when we talk about improvements in food safety culture, we specifically look at leadership and we look very closely at food safety and quality leaderships, leaders to make sure that they're prepared for leading a change, um, because we know that technical experts do not equal technical leaders. Experts and leaders have two different skill sets. So we have a very robust leadership development program to help move technical experts into technical leadership and becoming a more strategic, empathetic, um, influential, and even integrated leader in the organization. So that's a, kind of a long answer, but depending on all these things, we really use those to pinpoint where in our process the company is at so that we can better partner with them to improve food safety culture. Mm -hmm. And we really do that through those actionable steps so that they can see a difference right away. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. You know, certainly placing that emphasis on the people assessment first. And, you know, also with the understanding that food safety culture is a, um, uh, a business element that is constantly under development. You know, when you look at those two things combined, um, that's a that's a great starting point. And as you said, Jill, you know, meet people where they're at. I think that's you know a great way for you know approaching where do we start with this improvement plan. So, uh, thanks thanks for sharing for sharing that outline and and that uh, that information. That's awesome. So. As you mentioned, you place a lot of stress on enhancing and strengthening food safety leadership within an organization. Now, do you think that this starts with the food safety technical team or corporate management or operations or another area? And, you know, how do you see improvement in FSQ flowing throughout an organization? Yeah, we absolutely stress strengthening food safety leadership because this dreamy pie in the sky food safety culture that we're all talking about now, you know, it really starts with the food safety team. Um, and in fact, it starts with every food, every single food safety leader, right? And if you are sitting back sort of waiting for change or waiting for culture to happen, you're really missing out. Um, and it's probably not going to happen. Um, you know, food safety and quality leaders, we have to step up and we have to learn new skills and leading people, not just focus on technical skills that help you build programs. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I even have a personal story about this because when I worked at an organization, I really felt what it meant to be a technical expert, but not a technical leader. And really it was one of those where, you know, I'm smart, I'm motivated, I'm organized and I'm nice. But that alone wasn't meant to lead teams of people, especially teams of people across multiple facilities. And I didn't really have a mentor and I didn't really see leaders around that I wanted to emulate. So I had to figure out how to be a better leader. You know, and I was fortunate that I had an unfortunate situation that allowed me to request a leadership coach to help accelerate my learning. But honestly, it was a little stressful because my leadership coach was an operations coach. And they were very grounded in the traditional approaches like, well, tell people what to do and hold them accountable. And that just doesn't work in food safety because we are influencers and we own very little. And so this first kind of venture into leadership coaching really just showed me that I needed to know more. And I was hooked because what I saw was that being a leader in a business was actually really different than being a leader when I worked well on a project team or volunteering on a committee. And so that's why I really went into this self-learning so that I be could become a certified coach so that I could help others in food safety and quality build those effective leadership skills so they could really flourish as technical leaders. Yeah. And I love this story of Jill because it's <laughs> a really good example of how technical experts are not always technical leaders. You know, experts, we tend to lead into data and reports and science and process first, right? Like I'm, a, I'm an engineer, I, I get that. I get that piece of it, right? And those are really important as you are building food safety programs. But leading is focused on people. Um, it's using EQ as well as IQ. And you know, when you think about technical leadership, IQ really includes ensuring your team has the technical skills required. It means being crystal clear on those expectations and holding people accountable 
exactly what Jill was saying her coach was saying to her, right? Um, but that EQ side is really around empathy, compassion, influence, collaboration that really drives all the IQ stuff that needs to happen. You know, in fact, like all the technical know-how, all the IQ stuff, it really goes nowhere if you do not have EQ. And so focusing on those leadership skills really push us food safety and quality leaders into being business partners for the organization. And once we become business partners, we are then integrated into the organization. So that means we have a voice at the table and we are part of all functions of the organization, providing a valuable and respected, I always like to put in respected, you know, perspective on processes from new product development, budgeting, maintenance, as well as, you know, purchasing new equipment. Mm -hmm. You know, and I would even add to that, that we really want food safety quality leaders to be like a trusted member of that inner circle that is part of the big picture strategic planning. Because when we think about food safety culture, that's where it starts at those big picture ideas and putting all of those things into motion. Those are fantastic perspectives. And, you know, I think, um, Tia, what you were speaking about with, um, you know, a leader needing to have that uh, emotional intelligence and also the leadership skills, but also um, needing to have some of that background in the, the technical skill and the science because, you know, how else can they ensure that their food safety team has, you know, is doing the technical, you know, side correctly yeah. or has mm -hmm. the, the correct technical skills to be able to carry out their jobs and ensure that, you know, food safety is present and safe food is being produced. So, um, you know, definitely very, very good point there. Now, um, kind of continuing along this thread of FSQ leaders, um, what are some ways that you think that FSQ leaders, especially those that are new to that leadership role, can successfully embrace their roles and lead their teams? Yeah, so, you know, being in FSQ is a heavy weight to carry. And so when you think about all the things we have to do, whether it's you know, overseeing HACCP or suppliers, sanitation. We have to train the, the whole site. We manage complaints, um, recalls. You, we have all that as well as, you know, sometimes even leading five to 10 direct reports that, you know, these jobs are really inherently des designed for program development, to lead programs, not designed to lead people. And, it's important to say again that, you know, our responsibilities are heavy. Um, you know, the program side is heavy. You know, we're responsible for preventing and then reacting to consumer complaints and, and recalls and all of that while having very limited resources. And so our focus sort of goes to programs because that's what we're trained to do when really as you go into a new leadership role you should be focusing start to shift your focus to people development mm -hmm. you know that's even the article that we wrote with food safety magazine for the e-digest that was called something like lights camera action mm -hmm. that was really about helping fsq leaders step into this role of shifting from technical expert to technical leader because as a technical leader, your list of work for the day should really be check in with my people. And not just the how are you, but how are you really? Because 
you know, as Tia talked about, that gap from kind of that list of responsibilities to the actual job duties that we do is so common. Um, we know there won't be an immediate shift from leading programs to focusing on leading people right away. But that's really the transition that needs to happen so FSQ leaders can really champion the food safety culture that we all want to see. Yeah. So we will say that there's two things that new food safety quality leaders should focus on today to really embrace their roles and lead their teams. So number one, figure out your workload capacity for yourself and your team. And this is really a game changer because it provides visibility from responsible for XYZ to itemize lists of actual work. And then the second thing is to evaluate that workload capacity. Does it include time for you to have conversations with your team members? Like the, how are you really doing? You know, does it include time to build relationships outside of meetings? It's important as a FSQ leader that you are connecting with other team members, not just your team, but other team members such as key stakeholders that might be responsible for setting your budget or ordering new equipment. And as Joe mentioned, we're influencers. So we have to build those relationships in order to help influence, influence the direction of the organization. And so our, our leadership programs specifically address these things. You know, we have an early technical leader program that address the things that you should do in a new role, um, in a new food safety and quality role. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, you know, I mean, certainly there's something to be said, too, about getting to know your team better and, and understand who they are as people, because then not only do you understand how to function better as a team, but I think it also helps you evaluate, you know, their skills better and where to best place them, what to have them in charge of specifically. And this goes, you know, uh, this also goes for how do they interact with each other in a team, but also for their yeah. technical skills, right? Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. you see that somebody, you know, maybe they have a very technical mindset and they, um, you know, kind of do better when they're doing that deep science stuff, right? You know, so maybe they're the person that kind of deals with more of that, right? Yeah. And then another person kind of does better with um, the, you know, kind of the networking, dealing with, you know, people from other companies, you know, what have you. So you kind of figure out who's best poised to address these tasks if there's flexibility there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. absolutely. And yeah. we didn't we didn't mention this, but that's one thing that we also work with with our clients is what type of technical skills do you have on your team, right? And what do those people from a leadership standpoint, what type of leadership skills do they have and where you can help really position them in order for it to be best for your organization, right? Like we work best when we're in spaces that we love, that we are passionate about and where we're growing. And a lot of organizations, you know, they really don't quote unquote have time to do that type of work when it's critical to building a food safety culture. It's critical to understand what skills you have, what skills you need, um, technical and leadership skills, and then deploying them throughout your organization. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't mention that earlier, but that's 100% something that we focus on. That's so important. Yeah, Tia, those are great points. And, you know, certainly that would also help perhaps eliminate some of the turnover that we're seeing uh, in, in the industry too, and, and lessen that, that issue as well. So, um, Jill, I want to ask you a question now. You have focused heavily on coaching versus traditional consulting throughout your career. 
So how do you think this approach helps facilitate continuous improvement in both FSQ leadership and food safety management? Mm. Oh, that's a great question, Adrian. Um, you know, when it comes to coaching, coaching, we hear about it in many different forms. And people actually like to interchange words like coach and mentor and consultant, but they actually are all very different. And the reason I focus on coaching is that it's a core belief that people themselves are whole and resourceful. And that's how we approach our interactions with people and helping them move to the next level. And in fact, as an ICF certified coach, we take a pledge so that we you know, really ensure we're following rules and ethics to continually support people finding their own answers. And it's this belief that as a coach, we don't get in the way of people and where they're going, but we help them source that resourcefulness so that they can discover where they're headed and know the next steps. And that can be different than a mentor or a consultant who typically are people that we look to for answers and guidance. And so we know that with true coaching, when we give people space to source those answers from within themselves, it can be really magical. It's way more powerful than consulting or mentoring because when people source from within, they build confidence in themselves. They find internal motivation and with that, they are more likely to continue the path forward. To me, that is continuous improvement in a nutshell. And that's exactly what, I, what we want our food safety cultures to be. And I also think about what makes our leadership programs unique is that our programs are you know, created by technical experts, TNI, but they are really grounded in these coaching principles that people themselves are resourceful. And so inherently our programs are people focused, not just program focused. Yeah, that's a fantastic position. And I think, you know, helping people realize that they are a lot more resourceful and that, you know, based on all the things that they've learned and all the skills they've they've acquired and accumulated over the years that they can do so much more than they might realize with all of those resources they have within them. And perhaps, you know, it just needs to be uh, coaxed or coached, uh, you know, out of them. So um, that that's fantastic, Jill. Thanks for sharing that. Now, Tia, I have a question for you next. Now, you have founded the group Black Professionals in Food Safety and Quality. So tell us a little bit about how this group works to support and elevate leadership roles for Black professionals in the FSQ space. Yeah, so I started the Black Professionals in Food Safety and Quality Networking Group back in October 2021. Um, and really for it to be so that I can continue to mentor and be an active part of building black talent in the pipeline. Um, and to make sure that black professionals are in critical conversations. So we know like when you look at mentorship, you know, people mentor and sponsor people that remind them of themselves. And we know that people hang out in circles with people that are similar to them, whether it's similar titles or similar background, similar race, right? Um, and so when you look at statistics, you know, there's only six black CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. You know, McKinsey did a survey back in June 2020 that said that black employees only made up 7% of managers. And as you continue to increase title, that percentage, is, that percentage continues to decline. And so that's a problem. You know, black professionals were not a part of the conversations. We're not in, um, we're not in elevated leadership roles. And so 
that's why I created Black Professionals in Food Safety and Quality. I want to help continue to build that pipeline. Um, I want to create an avenue for Black professionals to be able to develop themselves professionally, to network with one another and others in the industry. And so, you know, our mission um, with this networking group is really to create that safe space for Black professionals to freely discuss current topics and upcoming regulations, to share best practices, network with each other, in the industry and develop professionally and personally. And so we meet virtually every every month to discuss different topics from technical development, from leadership development, how to grow our network, how to how to find that mentor, how to get to that next promotion. Um, you know, how to network at the next conference. We talk about all those things to help better prepare ourselves to have conversations. And so I've always had a passion for DEI, you know, in all my previous roles, you know, I've always been a leader or a mentor or advocate um, for our company's employee resource groups. Um, I even created an employee resource group that was focusing, that was focused on develop, on providing a safe space for black employees. And so that's always been a passion of mine. And when I went into consulting, I wanted to continue that work. And so, um, the group came about and we've been having meetings every month. Um, we officially kicked off our meetings in January and the group has continued to grow. That's great to hear. And I'm, I'm very glad that, you know, this group exists and that there are the opportunities, you know, for black professionals in FSQ to, to network, to mentor, to, you know, to find mentors, to pro provide, um, you know, opportunities and networking with each other and to, you know, also, you know, like you, you mentioned to discuss, you know, what is going on with the industry as well. So, you know, in within that the context of that space. So that's fantastic, Tia, and you know, keep up the awesome work. So thank um, you. That's great. Now, um, back to both of you. So in your work with Catalyst, how do you gauge the maturity of a business's food safety culture? And how should businesses scale their food safety cultures as they grow? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, to gauge the maturity of a business's food safety culture, we use that assessment that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. people, programs, and progress. And one of the outcomes of the assessment that we do is really understanding which maturity stage the company is at. And we use stages called compliance, early, moderate, or world-class. And it's all about starting where they're at and helping them create those plans to be at the level they wanna be. And oftentimes we'll get asked, oh, it seems like such a big plan. How do we actually do it? And it's really, it's about the, the, the old question of how do you eat the elephant? And it's one yeah. bite at a time, <laughs> right? Yeah, and you know, Jill mentioned those four maturity stages, and we really created those and used those at Catalyst to help communicate to our clients on what type of program development, technical skills, and leadership development they should be focusing on. Um, and these maturity, maturity stages are based on a number of factors, including what's your product exposure? You know, are you local or are you global? You know, do you have food safety personnel? leading food safety or is it the owner that's managing as much as they can what does your growth plan look like you know are you at the farmer's market today but want to be in a whole foods or target next year you know that 
that helps us understand where exactly they should be in the process um, and how they should continue to develop their food safety programs in their in their people. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to a business that is expressing that they have growing pains of having like too many things to focus on at once with, um, yeah. you know, trying to improve their food safety culture? Yeah, you know, one of the growing pains um, that we run into is that is the financial investment of food safety. And when you talk about like, there's so much going on, there's too many things, mm -hmm. it really sometimes comes down to money or, you know, or resources, right? Time, um, time right, exactly. And ultimately, that kind of balls up into investments. And you know, what we find is that most of the time companies wait too late to invest in food safety. So they wait too late to onboard uh, a partner um, to help them with food safety and they continue to do it themselves or they wait too late to onboard a GFSI scheme. Um, and that could mean that it could stop them from getting into a retailer because they don't have the scheme or um, they start to lose trust with their consumers because they're, they continue to have complaints or um, the worst piece is that they might have a recall and that then pushes them to invest even more into food safety. So what we'd like to say to those growing pains is that you know, we meet you where you are, right? Like that's been, that's been a theme because that's, what we, that's exactly what we do. And then we help our clients understand how they should invest in food safety based on where they are in their journey. Mm -hmm. You know, and to add to that, I think when we talk about growing pains as a within an organization, um, you know, there's really that people focus again. And I think when we start feeling those growing pains, it's really about tapping into that EQ we talked about earlier and understanding what are the actual pains people are experiencing because often we'll kind of have some, you know, overarching stereotypes about what we think that is, but it's amazing, right? When we just carve out a little bit of space and have conversations with people to understand and let them express where they're at and what that, what's coming out, it really helps alleviate some of that, you know, uncertainty that you can feel as you are navigating a growing pain. And so that's some of the work that we like to do as well, because once again, not always inherent to a technical expert on how to display and draw out EQ, because we often will use our IQ as our, you know, our kind of our crutch. Yeah. And, you know, one thing, this is why Jill and I became partners, right? <laughs> it's because, you know, Jill has this amazing coaching background, you know, and when I was in startup, I really noticed that startup companies have these growing pains around food safety and they don't know how to set that strategy to get out of it right like they don't know how to integrate food safety into their business and really think about food safety as an asset to the organization versus man we have to do this one other food safety thing or thinking about food safety in this silo um, when really they should be incorporating it into okay, we want to grow into X amount of whole foods by the end of next year. What do we need to do from a food safety standpoint? What do we need to do from an operations standpoint? What do we need to do from a marketing standpoint? You know, really, and those conversations happen, but they don't talk about what they need to do from a food safety standpoint, right? That's the piece that's missed. And when they're ready to get there and someone says, oh, well, we need a GFSI uh, certification. And they're like, oh man, let me go to my 
poor food safety leader who's already overwhelmed to say, oh, by the way, lead this audit for us. And we're like, man, organizations spend a year, a year and a half trying to get this scheme. And you want me to do it in three months? You know, so it's like because there was no planning. And so, you know, one thing that I really focused on is how do I help organizations understand that early on and start weaving in food safety so it doesn't seem like a pain. It's just a part of the growth. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic perspective, I think, and in in an important way to look at it for business success. So, you know, keeping all of that in mind, what would you guys say is your main message to FSQ leaders who are looking for inspiration on how to better manage their teams and their time and the day-to-day stresses of their jobs? Yeah, you know, we always say it starts with you. You know, change isn't passive, it's active. And you have to be intentional to make the changes you want to see. You have to be, you have to have the ability to make the change you want to see, even if you need a partner to help you. And, you know, when I think about my roles and in organizations, like many of us are in organizations that we feel like don't value food safety or won't put food safety first. It doesn't mean that you can't make a change within your your circle of influence. And I've been there. I've been in organizations where it's like, you know, the company is just not moving in a direction that they, that is really going towards having a a strong food safety culture. Um, But what I did was focus on, okay, what am I responsible for? I'm responsible for this facility. And we're going to have a good food safety culture, even if the rest of the facilities do not, even if the organization as a whole does not. And what you find is that that is contagious. And that is inspirational to the organization. And people would then start to realize, oh, wow, you dropped your consumer complaints down. And how did you do that? And you start talking through, oh, I had conversations with teams. I empowered them um, to make decisions. I created this process to make sure that we're thinking about food safety before product gets here. And then people start saying, Oh, I would I want that. Can you help me roll that out? Can you send me an example of this? Can you just share your documentation with me? And then now you're really starting to impact the the food safety culture. And I wasn't a director of the organization. I wasn't the head food safety person. I didn't have a voice at the table. I just knew where I could influence and I just started. And so that's one thing that we talk about all the time is that you have the ability to do it yeah and i think sometimes we forget that because we're carrying such a heavy load of responsibility and i always go back to brene brown who i think says it best when she says you don't have to do it alone you were never meant to so ask for help find a community for support and I think just know you matter and what you need matters as well. So if you know, I need to take a deep breath, I need five minutes away, I need a day off, <laughs> find those things that matter so that it can help you really show up as your best at work because we need experts like you in food safety and quality that are really willing to lead others so that we can be better together and have that dreamy food safety culture that we all talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 
we don't stop being people when we're at work, right? Yes. We are still our whole selves, even if we're only using part of that whole to do the job, but the other part of us doesn't get left back at home. We can't split ourselves in half. So right. Ooh, like the show on Apple TV severance. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> severance is awesome on Apple TV. And it's one of the last binge watch shows that we that we watched. <laughs> so that's not possible. That's yeah. not possible. We can't for do us that in do. real life. We can't and, do that in real life. It's right. a good thing and we you can't. You know? Exactly. Right. That's all I'm about to say. You don't want to. If you right. watch the show, you really don't want to. So it's important to bring your whole self and lean into your passions. And like Jill said, we need that. We need that in food safety because we we really do have a culture to change. And that takes time. That takes work. Um, and if we're doing it together, it makes it that much easier. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we can't do it alone. I, li I like these messages and, and I think they are very inspirational. So um, for my last question of the day, I'm going to ask you to that looking at the big picture now, how do you think that FSQ can become a trusted business asset that's used to protect consumers and brands and businesses? Yeah. So we like to say all business goals are food safety and quality goals. And so this may not be apparent at first, but FSQ should be a part of all business processes and leaders must actively jump in to be a partner across the organization. And so when we talk about technical skills, we're talking about leadership skills, this piece of being a business asset or a trusted business partner, this is really key to having a sustainable food safety culture integrating food safety into all parts of your business, that's the key for you to be able to assess business risk holistically and then lead your team accordingly. You know, this is the seat at the table. This is the inner circle. This is so you can lead strategically so everything else will follow, um, follow your lead, right? Like as you're trying to impact and move your food safety culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really about, you know, to go along with that, it's stepping up instead of sitting back. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. about, you know, the things we hear like finding solutions, not just the problems. And I think sometimes in food safety and quality, we're so passionate about what we do that sometimes we don't see that there are some other serious risks to our business, to business health that really need to be considered. And so when we can advocate for food safety, yet we can advocate for our organization, we advocate for our customer, and we advocate for our people, that really helps us become that tr trusted business asset that um, is well respected throughout our organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, certainly the risk to a business um, in light of things like a foodborne illness outbreak or a recall, they're so great. And so, you know, food safety needs to be top of mind at all times. And the thing that is, you know, you place the greatest emphasis on. So, yeah, I agree. Well, um, Jill and Tia, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your insights with our audience. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and getting to talk with you two today. Thank you for having us. It was fun. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Tia Glaive and Jill Stuber for joining us on the podcast today. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. Please don't hesitate to send us questions or suggestions to podcast at food-safety.com. You can always post a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. We're always excited to hear your feedback. 
To make sure that new and bonus episodes magically appear in your podcast player, click that follow or subscribe button in your podcast player and presto! Food Safety Matters episodes will magically appear in your podcast feed. And while you're there, throw some stars our way by rating the podcast. It only takes a minute and it's fun and good for everyone. All right, that's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on August 9th. In the meantime, take good care of yourselves and those around you, and we'll talk to you then.